Hello, and welcome to episode 49 of the Movie Marathoners podcast. I'm your host, Mati, and this week I am joined again by my friend, Ian Anderson. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing pretty well, as well as I could be doing. You know, yeah. I feel like I say that every time, but then crazier things keep happening. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, isn't that the truth? So this week, Ian and I will be discussing the filmography of one of Hollywood's most iconic living directors, Mr. Spike Lee. Spike has a new Netflix film coming out soon, so Ian and I have been catching up and rewatching some of the iconic films from his career that has spanned four decades. So what we've got is we picked five Spike Lee joints, starting with his first feature-length film, She's Gotta Have It, from 1986, and ending with the film that finally got Spike an Oscar, Black Klansman from 2018. The other films we'll be talking about are Do the Right Thing from 1989, 25th Hour from 2002, and The Sweet Blood of Jesus from 2014. We'll go through these films chronologically and discuss what works and what might not work about each of them, as well as some conversations about Spike's filmography in general and why he's such an iconic filmmaker. And as is the case with many of our multiple review episodes, we'll be foregoing these point two section in order to give us some more time to discuss these films. So as for spoilers, many of these films are decades old, and they can't be fully discussed without digging into spoilers. So with that in mind, I'm going to say that this is your spoiler warning for all the films that we'll be discussing today. And as usual, I'll provide timestamps in the show notes in the event that you want to skip a section to avoid spoilers for that particular film. Okay, so I just want to address something important before we start. Uh, Specifically, we need to address the fact that we are two white men, that are going to be talking about films that are very important for black culture and black representation. And those are things that we just can't comment on. And while I think that we can still have some meaningful conversation about these films, there is a very valid argument to be made that our opinions of these films don't actually matter. So hopefully this discussion draws more attention to these films. Like even if just one person watches some of these films as a result of our discussion, I think it's worth it. And that's why I still want to have this conversation with you, Ian. That and because it's really fun to talk about great films with you. Yeah. So that being said, I would highly encourage people to read or listen to reviews of these films from people of color, and I will do my best to provide links to some of these reviews in the show notes. And then we'd also be remiss to talk about Spike Lee films and not acknowledge what's currently happening in our country. Uh, We are recording this episode on Sunday, June 7th of 2020 which is the worst year in history, apparently, Uh, because at the time uh, there are widespread riots and protests across the nation as a result of police brutality and injustice towards black people. So I want to take this time to just say that the Movie Marathoners podcast fully supports the Black Lives Matter movement and that I am one of the millions demanding a reformation of the police system in America and an end to systemic racism. And I believe I can speak for Ian on that as well. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So if you listen to this podcast, I'd strongly suggest that you consider donating to the Black Lives Matter movement, and I will provide the link to that in the show notes as well. So with that, let's start talking about this story director. He is quite the character, uh, and let's do our best to have some fun. So first up, we've got Spike's first feature-length film, She's Gotta Have It. So I'm going to give the synopsis, which is from IMDb, directly copied. It goes, story of a woman and her three lovers. That's all it said. So yeah, I saw I saw that in the notes and I was like, oh, did he summarize a summary? No, that's (laughs) because I was like, that that can't be it. That's so funny. I mean, (laughs) it's not wrong. Yeah, it's correct. (laughs) So uh, she's got to have it stars Tracy Camilla Jones as a woman and Tommy Redman Hicks, John Canada Terrell, and Spike Lee as her three lovers. It is written and directed and edited and basically everything by Spike Lee. That celibacy thing didn't last too long. What was I fooling? As for Jamie, I just got a little crazy. Should have never gone back in the first place. It was a momentary weakness. He wanted a wife, that mythic old-fashioned girl next door. But it's more than that. It's about control. My body, my mind. Who is going to own it, them or me? I am not a one-man woman. All right, Ian, so this is Spike's very first film, and you had seen this in the past, correct? Uh, I've seen scenes from this in the past. This was my first full uh, watch-through of it, though. Okay, and what do you think about it? I really liked it. Um, There are, like, a, a few reasons why 
they sort of showed these particular scenes that I'm thinking of uh, in my film classes in school. One of the, I guess, most famous movies ever by uh, one of the most famous directors ever, uh, Akira Kurosawa, directed Rashomon. And it was Mm -hmm. structure-wise very similar to uh, She's Gotta Have It. It was like a story about justice and discovering who like murdered somebody. But they did the ex- like exact same thing that Spike Lee did with this movie, where it's almost like a doc- not documentary, but interviewing, um, talking heads with uh, their perspective on things. Like in "She's Got to Have It," we're we're talking to these three guys, and uh, what's the main girl's name? Nola. And we're talking to Nola, and they all give their like various perspectives on what's happening, who's in a relationship with who. And that's something that like is pretty clearly not taken, but like it's the same as in Rashomon, and I thought that was really borrowed. cool. <laughs> yeah, borrowed. Yes, that is that is there the nicer go. word. <laughs> um, but I, I think that's a really cool style of storytelling because um, you get to see like all of their personalities come out in how they perceive things to have happened. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the really cool thing that struck me about this film was that it came out in a time where it was hard to find mainstream, wide-release films that had just a single black actor with a meaningful role. And this one takes three black actors and it allows them to play characters such that they're all very different from one another. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, to an extent, they're caricatures or, like, romantic archetypes, right? Like, Spike Lee is the funny one, and then there's the wealthy kind of asshole one played by um, John Terrell. Mm-hmm. But it's I think it's noteworthy because having multiple African-American characters means that the film gets to explore the diversity of personalities and the different types of people in the African-American community instead of just saying, this is the African-American character. And yeah, yeah, I thought sure. that was really enjoyable to watch, especially for a film that is from the 80s because that is very unlike films of that time i think this film also has a very student film feel to it it feels very i think it's similar or it's for similar reasons than what you were saying which uh you know with the interview and the talking heads sort of everything takes place very intimately and it's Mm -hmm. a lot of people just talking to the camera or talking to each other and there's not a lot of flashy filmmaking going on here yeah and i think that's one of those things that you can sort of see in most of Spike Lee's f- films that we're going to talk about, like they are all very character focused. Um, they aren't flashy in that kind yeah. of way. Like this one doesn't even really have a plot. Uh, some of the films yeah. we'll be talking about have plots, but this Barely. one <laughs> definitely has the least plot of all the five that we'll yeah. be talking about for sure. Yeah. Ian, have you watched The Bachelorette ever? Yeah. Yeah, I've watched The Bachelorette. Are you kidding me? Okay, just making sure. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what you do in your free time. <laughs> uh, actually, I do. But uh, <laughs> so I watched a lot of The Bachelorette. Uh, it is trash television. But the thing that I love the most about it is getting to watch incredibly attractive men be incredibly petty to each other and incredibly <laughs> insecure with one another as they're fighting over this woman yeah. who clearly has like a favorite and is clearly way better than any of these men and i love the like two-on-one or three-on-one group dates where people are trying to aggressively (laughs) get more time with this one woman and just getting and talking to the camera and being like oh well you know this guy's kind of a jerk because he was talking to the girl who i want to talk to and it's so fun And I thought that this movie was an entire season of The Bachelorette in 90 minutes. And it was my favorite thing in the world. Yeah, it's great, especially because she like pretty much chooses like none of them. (laughs) Yeah, it's a Bachelorette season where at the end she's like, "Mm, no, I don't need (laughs) a man, which good for her. Um, There's a scene where he invite like she invites all three dudes over for Thanksgiving which is just the most so hilariously fun. uncomfortable scene in the world. Could you imagine that? <laughs> yeah, that was so funny. Like sitting at a table 
and and then they play Scrabble. Like they play Scrabble together, and all three of these dudes are having a romantic and sexual relationship with this woman at the same time, and they just have to sit there across from each other and just pretend to be okay with it. It's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. Like, one of them tries flirting, and then the other two get pissed at that guy, and then he tries flirting, and then the next two get pissed at him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just like a vicious cycle. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really fun, and I mean, it's really fun to see these men just be super... I don't know. I, I don't know if insecure is the right word. They're not as petty or insecure as the men on The Bachelor, but I love, or The Bachelorette, I mean, but I just love watching these dudes just kind of like watching them suffer. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty fun. Flail around. Yeah. I feel like this film also feels a bit like the film version of that Instagram account, Humans of New York, with that talking head part where somebody's just sitting on yeah. a bench and you're just talking about things. And like the mashed up, like artsy photos. Yeah, especially the opening. Yeah. So what do you think the purpose of having this film be in black and white is? Yeah, I wasn't really sure for most of the movie. The only the only time I like ever thought about about it, I guess, was um when they had the one scene in color, the the dancing musical like dream sequence kind of thing. Yeah. That was the only time I really thought about it because that was a departure from reality, I guess. Um, and that's why it was in color. I don't know if it like black and white is like her seeing things. I don't know. But my understanding was that that scene was not it wasn't like out of reality. It was just he brought her to a place where there was a dancer, right? Because that dancer that is doing the dance for her birthday is yeah. also the one that Jamie starts dating. I think that was like it was in color because that is how um, like she saw it in her head. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, it's an homage also to Wizard of Oz, right? Like he says sure, there's no yeah. place like home. I guess the way I interpreted it in the moment was that this is her experiencing love and all the other things are not her experiencing love. So there's like that lack of color in her life. But then the ending of the film is very much that she does not need life or specific uh, love or like doesn't need a man in her life. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't totally understand how that works. But um, I mean, it was certainly effective for it to be in black and white and then have that one scene in color because that is like the most uh, fantastical scene in the whole movie. Yeah, for sure. I also think that it might be in black and white just to make editing a little easier. I don't know if that's true, if that's actually what happens. Yeah. I don't know if that makes editing easier, but he did edit this. And it was pretty... Would it have helped with the budget? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. It's pretty like low maybe budget. It's, yeah, maybe it's easier to get lighting and stuff when you're thinking yeah. about it in black and white. I I don't really know. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That cutting edge analysis that I'm looking for, Ian. I have no idea. <laughs> you can quote me on that. Good, good. I plan on it. So can we also say that the opening scene in this starts with a text crawl, and it is the fastest moving text crawl that I've ever seen in a movie. I was like <laughs> yeah, panicking to read it as quickly as possible. <laughs> no, we need... It was too fast, Ian. How long does it take you to read a sentence? I don't know. <laughs> Faster than this one, or I mean slower than this one goes, that's for sure. It was it was very overwhelming. I felt very anxious for the first 30 seconds of this movie because it was asking me to read at an incredible speed. All right. Well, you should uh, be sure to get in contact with Spike Lee about that. Yeah, or Netflix. I mean, so fortunately, this film is on Netflix. So after the movie, I paused the movie at the very beginning and just reread the quote. So there's one thing that... I want to bring up quickly about this movie that I think is a little thematic and problematic in a lot mm. of Spike's movies is that he does not always have the best treatment of female characters. Um, yeah. That's obviously not, you know, specific just to Spike. And, you know, a lot of that is just a product of the times. But there mm. is a scene in this that definitely does not age well where Jamie essentially rapes Nola at the very end. 
Um, and Spike has actually said in interviews that he actively regrets that rape scene and that it was a stupid decision. So I don't know. Yeah, that was weird. It felt really out of left field. Yeah, it felt like one of those things that I believe that the that Spike did not intend it to be as severe as it is in retrospect now, if that makes yeah. sense. And it, yeah. it does just it definitely left a bad taste in my mouth for the Jamie character, who for all intents and purposes otherwise is the most ideal candidate or whatever of mm-hmm. the three. Mm-hmm. Um and it's the one that she does decide that she wants to have a monogamous relationship with until she realizes that she doesn't actually need that. And that was a a weakness or whatever. It's actually a pretty fun, funny line. Um, But yeah, that scene is definitely something that uh, it's, it's clear that this film is from another time. Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel a lot of spikes earlier films, like the one that we'll talk about next has a very like timeless quality to it, even if it's not, you know, necessarily for the best reasons that it has a timeless yeah. quality. <laughs> um, this one for sure feels like it's very much an 80s film. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, that reminds me. So this, I don't know. I, I don't really know anything about the show, but there is a Netflix show called She's Gotta Have It. And have you watched it at all? Nope. <laughs> no. no. Okay. I, I, I don't know if it like is a continuation off of this, if it's completely different. My understanding from very limited research, as is the movie marathoners tradition, is <laughs> that <laughs> uh, it's sort of just like a retelling. Like Mars is a character and Jamie and Greer, I think, are also characters and Nola is a character. So okay. it's basically just, I think, a longer narrative version of this story. Um, but I know that there is nothing like the rape scene in this in that TV show. Yeah, I, I guess it would just be interesting to watch it and see what they changed and what stayed. Yeah, I believe it's also in color, right? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, that, that might actually be an interesting exercise to just see. Like, I, And the fact that Spike Lee is the one doing it. like he, I believe he directs everything in the show. Yeah, so okay. I wonder how... Like, is how much of that retelling is just kind of a chance for him to kind of fix that one major mistake versus yeah. how much is he, um, like, how much is he updating the story? That would be a really interesting exploration for sure. Yeah, I might, I might have to watch that. That'll be my next point too, probably next time I'm on. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, so uh, she's got to have it. His very first film. Um, I would say it's a good one. Definitely worth watching. It very much feels like a feature film, or I mean, a, a mm. first feature in a lot of ways, because it's a little rough around the edges. You know, it, it doesn't, I mean, it, it very feel, very much feels like a student film uh, in good ways and bad ways, but it's definitely a film worth watching because it's free on Netflix. Do you have anything else you want to say about it? <laughs> no, I mean, that, that, that was pretty much it. I did really enjoy it, um, and I didn't think I would just because I always have to go into much older movies with a grain of salt because i'm biased (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah for sure um i think what we'll do is we'll rank these five films afterwards but we don't need to go into specific scores about each of them yeah so with the caveat obviously that we haven't seen every single spike lee movie actually all of these five movies are the only spike lee movies i've seen so uh (laughs) yeah All right, let's move on to just an absolute Spike Lee classic. It's kind of, in some ways, his most iconic film and the film that some people consider is one of the best films ever made. This is the 1989 film, Do the Right Thing. So this one has a much better synopsis on IMDb. It says... On the hottest day of the year, on a street in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn, everyone's hate and bigotry smolders and builds until it explodes into violence. Do the Right Thing stars, again, Spike Lee, Danny Aiello, John Turturro, and Bill Nunn. It is written and directed by Spike Lee. So a little inside baseball here, Ian. Uh, When we first started this podcast way back when, we made a little banner for our Podbean website. And we made the banner out of different movie posters, kind of ordered in color. And I had you pick 10 films, and I had myself pick 10 films, and we kind of made a little... uh, 
banner out of all collage, of those film yeah. posters. Yeah, collage. And one of the films that you picked is Do the Right Thing, which has a very lovely blue poster. So it actually fit nice with like my Finding Nemo. Uh, same <laughs> film, definitely. <laughs> no, but uh, so why is Do the Right Thing one of your favorite films? Yeah, I mean, it's been one of my favorite films, I think, since I was shown it in middle school. They they showed our class in middle school. That sort of started a race war in my school, which was, you know, that's always fun. Wait, it, it did? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, people were not happy that uh, the teacher was showing this movie. Which, oh, wow. which I guess I'll go into a bit later. That This movie was very poorly received by uh, white film critics <laughs> when it came out. Yeah. It's definitely one of my favorite movies. And really like how uh, the synopsis you read says it, the tension builds and then it absolutely explodes at the end. Mm-hmm. And I thought this was one of the best um, examples of tension building I've seen. I think it is the best example of tension building that i've seen in a movie like we talked about earlier with uh she's gotta have it like spike lee is very character focused and um in this movie it's it's exactly the same as uh with she's gotta have it they do very uh personal talking head kind of interviews of what's going on in this neighborhood and everybody's anger is like rising and rising towards each other like everybody like there's nobody who's happy besides maybe like samuel l jackson who's like a radio host who's just like having a good time. Um, (laughs) But, but yeah, the tension just keeps building and you keep seeing these people get angrier and angrier and eventually it it just erupts into a riot. So, so in this movie, uh, Spike Lee like sort of continuously presents the question of like whether uh, you should confront racial intolerance through like nonviolent confrontations or uh through like a violent rebellion like what happens at the end of this and the movie sort of leaves it up for you to decide but very similarly to what's happening in the country now people uh like the white guys in the movie they are comparing a pizza place and destruction of a pizza place to a man that died Mm. you know and so even though uh, I think Spike Lee is trying to make it an open question because he's trying to make this movie accessible, I think it's pretty obvious that he feels that the man's life was much more important than any sort of destruction of property. Um, it, and that's one of the, my favorite parts of this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's even more than that, that I think you know Spike Lee does kind of open up this idea of do you follow the Martin, the teachings of Martin Luther King or do you follow the teachings of Malcolm X? And I think the nuanced answer is that it definitely depends. It depends on the individual. It depends on the given circumstance. Um, and it depends on, you know, the, the state of everything that's going on. Yeah. It's very clear to me from this movie, though, and from the fact that Spike Lee makes a movie about Malcolm X's life. And from some interviews that I've seen with him, that he is leaning towards the ideas of Malcolm X. But I think the idea that there is sort of a an ambiguity to it is very mm-hmm. interesting. Um, and there certainly are characters in this, like the uh, the mayor character, that is would identify more as a um, follower of the Martin Luther King style of teaching. Um, but I think. What really works about this film, and I I will say that this is a film that I might never watch again, just because, I mean, at least now, (laughs) you know, um, hopefully there's a, yeah, you know, hopefully there's a time sometime in the future where this is not relevant anymore and you can watch it and be like, wow, I can't believe this was a thing. Um, But when I watched it, honestly, it was a really upsetting film to watch, mainly Mm -hmm. because the film addresses these problems as they are realistically. And I think it's yeah. um, it's interesting to compare this film to something like Black Klansman, which famously lost to uh, Green Book, which while I honestly enjoyed parts of Green Book, and I think it's, you know, as far as a movie goes, a pretty decent movie, the, the racial relationships in that movie are incredibly um, simple. And the solution mm-hmm. that they offers is 
be nice to everyone, which is obviously way too simple of a solution for these really complicated problems. And in this film, I feel like there's no easy solutions. There's no, mm-hmm. you know, the the world is broken, so the solution is not going to be right or uh, happy for everybody. Somebody is going to suffer or everybody is going to suffer. And I mean, the film ends on like a really depressing note where he says that even after all of this, the heat is going to continue to build up. It's going to be even warmer the day after than it is the day that this film takes place. And of course, the the, the heat is... Uh, a metaphor for the building tension and everything like that, right? So, I mean, I, I found this yeah. film incredibly well done, but incredibly frustrating to watch, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and something I think we should also m- mention, this is a very serious film, but uh, Spike has, also has a very, like, trademark kind of uh, juxtaposition with humor. Um, and, and I think you see that a lot more in, like, I guess, Black Klansman. Mm-hmm. But yeah. he's really he's really good at like drawing you in with humor and then like very slowly putting on a dramatic pressure that like leaves you like reflecting on whether it was like right to laugh. Yes. <laughs> and he like makes you uncomfortable like with his humor and it, it's really well done, I think. Yeah, that's something that I definitely want to talk more about in Black Klansman because mm-hmm. uh, I, w- I feel like in this one it's very much a, a steady slope. Where it at the very beginning, it's it's not really, you know, like you could convince somebody for the first 15 minutes of this movie that it's going to be a comedy. Um, mm-hmm. And then they'd be like, what the hell after a little while? <laughs> but it, it's not kind of a switch. Whereas in Black Klansman, it's definitely a switch where it's almost like really funny for a while. And then at the last second, it says, no, fuck you for laughing. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think that's a really good point. Before we uh, wrap up on this, I also have a fun fact about this movie. I've written, like, a few essays about this movie and, like, a review mm. and stuff for nice. classes. And in my digging, I uh, I found that this uh, was the movie that Barack Obama and Michelle saw on their first date, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> I saw that. Like, could you imagine this movie as a first date movie? This is, like... Up yeah. there with like midsummer levels of uncomfortable to I, I mean, obviously, I'm sure it's completely different as an African-American viewer. Um, yeah. But it also yeah. makes me wonder what the trailer was like. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this was definitely a uh, moment for sure in like black cinema, for sure. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think this was a very financially successful movie. Yeah. A lot of the the controversy. I mean, if you look at the Wikipedia page of this. And there's like a subsection that's about the controversies of this film. A lot of the yeah. controversies are like white people not really, you know, just really dumb things like being concerned that yeah. this film incites violence, even though it doesn't. Um, yeah, I actually wrote a uh, 1000 word press analysis of all of the criticism that this movie got. And I did a presentation for our class of like, like journalists were saying that this movie was going to make uh quote like some audiences go wild um <laughs> there were going to be riots uh like mayors banned it from their towns wow yeah i mean i it's i mean i understand why this film is called controversial i would not say it's controversial but it is certainly like deeply um nuanced <laughs> i yeah. guess and certainly depending on how you view this film you could take it in a whole bunch of different ways. But I think what's always interesting about Spike Lee in a way that is not necessarily true about every other director is that Spike Lee is always very intentioned in everything he does. Mm -hmm. So while a lot of films, there's like some leeway and intent of the author and what does it mean? Oh, maybe it means nothing. I feel like Spike Lee is one of those directors where you could point at anything in his movie and ask the question, what is the purpose of this? Why is this included? What is he trying to say? And I think it's very clear that from this film, Spike is trying to shed a light on the the really, really systematic, systemic problems of racism in the country. Mm-hmm. And it's super mm-hmm. frustrating that this movie came out 30 fucking years ago. Like, yeah. And there are literally riots in the street right now that are exactly like this. And, uh, mm-hmm. but, you know, <laughs> um, just touching again on that that tension that you mentioned, I, I really like that the film sort of feels like... Did you ever have one of those toy cars that you would like 
roll backwards with the wheels and it would wind up and then you'd release yeah. it. it yeah. This film very much feels like that, where it's basically an hour and 45 minutes of somebody just bringing the car back and winding it up. And then the second they <laughs> let it go, the car just like explodes. <laughs> um, but I it's mean, it is, it is, <laughs> it's, it's a great, it is an absolutely great movie, but it is a very difficult film to watch. I'm also really upset yeah. that it's not anywhere accessible. Uh, we had to buy this movie or mm -hmm. I mean rent it, um, which is frustrating. And I think a lot of people should be able to have direct access to this film. I think it's really important. Yeah, for sure. Just some like less serious things. Uh, I know. So Rosie Perez, I did not know that she got her start from this. We saw yeah. her in Birds of Prey. She was really bad in Birds of Prey. I thought she was much better in this. <laughs> and then there's also Martin Lawrence just randomly in this film, which I thought was crazy. <laughs> I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, he's one of the guys that plays around with the water. Oh. Yeah, it's just Martin <laughs> Lawrence. And then the the bug out. I think his name is Bugging Out, Bugged Out, something like that. Oh, yeah. That is a completely unrecognizable Giancarlo Esposito. Oh, yeah. I think I knew that. I mean, I knew he was in the movie, and the whole time I was watching it, I was like, where is Giancarlo Esposito? When is he going to turn up? And then at the end of the movie, I realized it was bug out or Bugging Out. Really, really <laughs> good role for him, too. I mean, everybody, all the acting in this movie is excellent. I think the production yeah. design is excellent. The heat is so palpable in this movie especially yeah. with uh what's his name a yellow he just he just looks like he is so uncomfortable all the time <laughs> <laughs> it's not an act yeah yeah but yeah so i mean this is a movie that's definitely worth watching i think especially now it's incredibly relevant and mm -hmm. i would highly recommend anybody to watch it i don't know if this is a movie that I love, actually, I know it's not. Um, it's it's a really, really tough movie to watch for sure. Um, but I think it's incredibly important. And the more I think about it, it's, it's one of those films that right when it ended, I was like, oh, God, I don't really want to talk about this movie. But the more I yeah, the more I thought about it, the more <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about it and the more I wanted to have conversations about it. And um, yeah, just a really, really fantastic movie. I will also say the tech speed in this at the very end with the Martin Luther King and the <laughs> Malcolm X quote, much, much better. I was able to read it. It was great. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> if, any, if any if any directors are watching or listening to this right now, just be ready for Mati's very strict text scrolling guidelines because he will tear you apart. I would just say, err on the side of caution. Not everybody reads super fast. Some people are better with numbers. Uh, if he wants if he wants to ask me to solve a math problem by throwing it up on a black screen in between uh, scenes, then he doesn't have to put that on for that long. But for me, I think I need my tech speed a little slower than the average person. Okay? That's all I'm saying. Fair. <laughs> Is it? Anyways... Let's hop past <laughs> the 90s to discuss a film from 2002. This is 25th Hour. The synopsis of this film is, Cornered by the DEA, convicted New York drug dealer Montgomery Brogan reevaluates his life in the 24 remaining hours before facing a seven-year jail term. 25th Hour stars Edward Norton, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Barry Pepper, and Rosario Dawson. It is written by Mr. Game of Thrones himself, David Benioff, and it is directed by Spike Lee. What is that? 62nd percentile? Yeah. That's you. That's where you rate. All the bachelors in New York were all competing for the same women. Well, the straight bachelors. And I'm in the 62nd percentile? Yes, sir. Well, in other words, I'm better than 62% of the New York bachelors. Well, you rated higher than them, yeah. But worse than, what, 38%? No, 100%. How'd you come up with... 62. There's a little science figuring it out. There's a science of figuring it out. That sounds very scientific. Now, if I may inquire, what's your rating? Well, you should ask. Mm -hmm. I happen to fall right in the 99 percentile. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Who came up with the ratings? I didn't. You came up with the ratings. Mm -hmm. Then you get a 99. It's very interesting. Yeah. So, Ian, does this feel like something that was written by the guy who kind of fucked up Game of Thrones? <laughs> well, that, when you that put it that really way, mean. <laughs> I mean, that he actually, also made uh, like 
six really good seasons. I didn't so. recognize his name at first, so that that makes sense now. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are your thoughts on Twenty Fifth Hour? I thought it was fine. I I watched it, and then I was like, "That was a meh movie." Um, some parts with Edward Norton were really good, but then I looked up the movie, and apparently, this was like, like some people think it was the best movie of the decade. Which yeah. I guess completely missed with me. Um, it might have to do with when it was released, because this is the closest to nine eleven that I think any movie I've seen that has to do with nine eleven like w- was released. You know? Yeah, I mean, I mean, nine eleven is a really touchy subject for movies in general. I think even now, the only mm-hmm. other film that I can think of that I've seen is the United ninety three. Which is yeah, a, specifically about nine eleven. This film is peripherally about nine eleven and more about the response to nine eleven. And um, and go ahead. That just reminds me, like this was based on a novel. Um, yeah, <laughs> and so nine nine eleven like wasn't a part of that novel, and it makes me wonder, like, I guess why they chose to include it. They're just like. This movie and another one we're going to talk about later, there seem to be a lot of things going on, and I just don't don't completely uh, understand why there are so many things going on. I guess uh, when when they did when they don't have to be. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know? I I agree with you. Um, this film feels like there's so much happening, and it feels like not all of it works in the way that I think it's supposed to. Yeah. You know, I think some of the dialogue in this film is almost weirdly intentionally corny and cliche. It doesn't always work. I think this, of the five that we're going to talk about, this is Spike Lee's most gendered movie. There's a mm-hmm. lot of male gazy and angsty and very sexist undertones in a lot of the dialogue and the storylines. There's a whole character that's just this sort of kind of disturbing schoolgirl fantasy thing that really does not age well for me i don't know if it worked at the moment like at the time yeah really it's really uncomfortable i watched this with my girlfriend dana hated this movie (laughs) she like actively hated this movie i don't know did you watch this alone or did you watch this with maddie i I watched i watched it alone but she would have hated it yeah so (laughs) (laughs) um yeah, there's there's a lot of weird, really weird things going on, but I think the thing that a lot of Americans were responding to in the immediate aftermath of 9/11 because this movie came out like 15 months after 9/11 was the yeah. rage and the anger and the confusion and all of that emotion kind of just didn't have an outlet for a lot of people, and I think especially for men. Um and that's something that, you know, I don't know if you remember 9/11, but I honestly don't. Um, it was when we were very young. Yeah. So that's not something that I can really relate to, but I think that when you think about that as the, um, kind of the purpose of the movie and looking at how Spike Lee juxtaposes the idea that life is never going to be the same once Monty goes to prison and the idea of how America is never going to be the same after nine 11, there, there's something there, but I agree with you that it doesn't really all work. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know how to feel about Monty. Uh, I didn't know if I was th- supposed to think that he was like a bad dude. I think he yeah. is. <laughs> but but then they like open it with him. He, he was like saving a dog, right? Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay, so he's he's a good drug dealer. <laughs> like he's a he's a good guy. But then like they keep like I thought that like I don't know why they included that little scene if they weren't going to be like setting the stage for him being like a good guy you know like down the line yeah well so i wonder how much of that is us just responding to how he and his friends and his relationship with rosario dawson is again very Mm -hmm. gendered and sexist and i wonder if that's just in 2002 people just weren't that or let me let me say men just weren't that responsive to that and so maybe he's coming off worse to us in retrospect with the idea yeah, that maybe. people should not be talking about women like that. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I I don't know. But then I also didn't buy into his whole like regretting uh continuing dealing and stuff like that because he he like started to like get money for his dad. But then he had the money for his dad and he kept doing it, right? Yeah. Well, that was like, the idea is that he was definitely the what is what is the saying? Uh, I mean, his own worst enemy obviously, but yeah, I mean, like he's to blame for him going to prison. Yeah, which I yeah, think is 100 aspect. What did you think about his kind of "fuck you" monologue, where he was basically saying "fuck you" to the entire city of New York, and then ultimately oh, yeah. saying, "No, not don't fuck New York, fuck me," because I fucked everything up. Um, yeah, so that felt like it was like ripped straight out of a "do the right thing," pretty much. Yep. <laughs> like remember the uh, like the shouting between like everybody in the neighborhood, getting all angry at each other. Everybody hated every single other person. That just reminded me of that, but obviously, like this was him just projecting his hate of himself onto other people. We like, like I guess that like the whole point of that was like we blame other people for the problems that we have. It was really well done, though. Like I, I was really surprised at Norton there. I I think it's a really good monologue, um, especially because at the end he does come to that realization that no it's not everybody else it's himself that is to blame mm-hmm. and i'm not quite sure how that tracks with the 911 parallels like yeah I don't... is is it our fault I, I don't know but <laughs> i think we had to draw i think we like dropped 911 at that point and it was <laughs> okay okay it was just him <laughs> uh the the sort of weird part for me is that that monologue happens very early in the film where I feel like it would almost have been better later in the film where we were given a little bit more of that kind of like douchebag Ed Norton before he kind of realizes that it's time for him to go away and accept responsibility for everything that he's done and all of that stuff. Um, It feels weird for him to say, no, you fucked it up, and then sort of go around moping for the rest of the day with his friends and everything like i i just it it was a little inconsistent for me yeah and then another thing is that they were supposed to like leave this movie i guess like the goal was to leave it open-ended as to whether he like runs or goes to goes to face his punishment you know yeah (laughs) um but but his entire rant seems to be him coming to the realization that he did this to himself and he's going to suffer for it. Yeah. Like that didn't seem like the kind of speech a person would give and then go start their life over. you know? Right. And I feel like almost, and maybe that's the point of the film, but it feels like (laughs) if he goes and starts his new life, then everything in the movie is completely undermined in my opinion. (laughs) Um, I mean, I thought that the idea of, Brian Cox kind of giving a monologue and a whole painting, painting a whole picture of what his life could be and all of this stuff is interesting. Again, kind of uh, paralleling 9-11 about how that's a thing that could have happened and that perfect thing, you know, could have happened, but it's unreachable now or, you know, Mm -hmm. we were so close to having it. We were so close to stopping this thing or whatever. All of that works for me, but as the personal story of this guy, it it, it falls apart for me. I mean, I as good as Ed Norton is, I don't think his character is very interesting. Like, I don't really care what happens to him. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, I agree. This is it's a very weird movie. Um, honestly, I'm I'm very lost as to why people think this is the best movie. Um, of you know right. the decade or whatever, but who knows? The other weird thing that I thought didn't really work about the film is that seven years is not really the longest life sentence. It's not a life sentence. No. Well, that's another thing that really pissed me off and thought like, I was like, this definitely won't age well is because he didn't seem like super broken up about going to prison and his sentence. He seemed to be really worried about like getting assaulted and like raped in prison yeah which i thought was i don't know i i thought that was a weird thing to put in yeah i think there is almost 
a iron. I think there is almost an irony to having Spike Lee, a very prolific African American director, do this story about a guy who kind of has an existential crisis the day before he goes to year or like goes to jail for just seven years. Whereas there are African Americans in this country who are, you know living out lifelong sentences in prison for much, much, much minor offenses. Nonviolent crimes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you know, it seemed that he was relatively acquiescent with the police and everything like that without giving up the people he was working for or whatever. Like, it, you know, he didn't run away from the crime scene or anything. But still, mm. um, there is something there that I don't know is fully acknowledged by the film itself. But kind of that meta idea of knowing that Spike Lee directed this film kind of gives it a sense of almost as if like, I don't know, like white Americans have this sort of like self-pity or self, it's almost like, I mean, okay, I'm not saying that seven years is not a long time. I would hate to go to prison for seven years, obviously, (laughs) but I don't know. Are you really going to start your whole life over and for seven years, you'll probably get out in three or four. You know, I, it, I'm a little confused yeah, by all that. Yeah, that's a good point. Too. It's a good point. I, I don't know. But, I mean, I guess I the, the things that I thought were effective about this film were that Ed Norton and Barry Pepper, I liked their um, friendship. And I thought that the expression of anger at the end where he has to beat the shit out of him was very mm. um, realistic for how stereotypical men may express their pain and sadness and love for each other and things like that. I thought that worked. And then I really liked the editing that came when Edward Norton would hug somebody. It would do kind of like a a double hug or the editing would play the scene again really quickly. And it was, it really helped me as the audience be like, shit, that's the last time that this guy is going to do that for at least seven years. And for that reason, I also thought again, like why wouldn't they just make the sentence longer? This is not a real story. Yeah, again, I'm feeling the same thing. Like, like, why do I care? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Uh, maybe if somebody's listening really understands this film and we're just being idiots, definitely let us know. But uh, I think that's all we got to say about it for, for now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's move on to a film that we included for the sole reason that it was available on Hulu. This is called <laughs> The Sweet Blood of Jesus. Uh, so a synopsis is Dr. Hess Green becomes cursed by a mysterious ancient African artifact and is overwhelmed with a newfound thirst for blood. He, however, is not a vampire. Soon after his transformation, he enters into a dangerous romance with Ganja Hightower that questions the very nature of love, addiction, sex, and status. The Sweet Blood of Jesus stars Stephen Tyrone Williams, Zara Abrams, and Rami Malek, for some reason. It is written by Spike Lee and Bill Gunn, and it is, of course, directed by Spike Lee. Okay, so, you know, we were deciding which movies to include in this, and <laughs> um, I foolishly included this one instead of Malcolm, Malcolm X, because Malcolm X is like almost three hours, and we would have had to rent that one as well. Um, I would have I would have much rather watched Malcolm X. Uh, that was a mistake on my part, but... Ian, <laughs> what were your thoughts on The Sweet Blood of Jesus? Um, <laughs> I think I like mentally check, checked out pretty quickly in this one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not going to lie. No, no, the exact same thing. About an hour in, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I'm going to work on something <laughs> while I watch the rest of this. Even this is a really stupid nitpick. But, um, (laughs) but it's not about vampires, but it is, you know, like he he says in interviews that they weren't vampires. I don't, I don't know what I, I don't know know what else I would call this guy. Like he was supposedly (laughs) undead and was drinking blood. I, but, um, like you wrote in your notes that we share, it's a Kickstarter film and it feels like it, Mm -hmm. um, the acting I thought was just really bad. I couldn't tell if it was like purposely done or not, though, because it seemed so um, deliberately uh, flat. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, um, no, I, I know what's exactly his name. What you mean. Wi- Williams. 
like it was all just like it was like he was just muttering while wearing like in like unreadable expression on his face <laughs> and meanwhile we're meanwhile like the the plot or whatever the plot is is supposedly hanging on this like relationship that he has but like you can't tell that there's a relationship there you can only tell there's a relationship there because of like the mom, it tells like, the you. words that I, I mean because they have sex and stuff yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i completely agree uh this just doesn't work for me at all you know, I it's still a Spike Lee film, so there's mm. a lot of interesting things going on. I, I believe when you were talking about 25th Hour, this was the film that you were saying is the other film that has a lot going on, kind of. Yes. <laughs> uh, there, there's a lot of random shit that happens in this movie, and it all means something. But unlike Do the Right Thing, which also has uh, maybe shit is not the right word for it in that case, but a lot of stuff going on in that movie, it all crescendos into something meaningful or at the very least coherent. And I feel like this yeah. film has a lot of shit going on. Spike Lee is definitely saying something, something about religion <laughs> and how blood lust is an addiction. And, you know, there's also some stuff between disparity of wealth and, you know, of course, racism and the alienation of wealthy black men um amongst their peers all of this stuff but none of it is interesting yeah and like it never comes together yeah exactly <laughs> and like even if it did i still don't think like i would really like it just because like i said like this whole thing is hinging on a relationship between the characters and it just doesn't work <laughs> <laughs> that that was my biggest that was my biggest issue like even <laughs> even if the themes somehow came together if if you know like they got it seems like it might be s somewhat about like religion and how that's pretty much an addiction but it, yeah that not, that the racism uh the socioeconomic uh disparities it, yeah it just never comes together <laughs> yeah completely agree i i don't want to just bash on this that's movie really, so we can we can probably no, move on. i know that, that's really all i have to say <laughs> but yeah i mean i think whereas um spikes i thought it was beautiful though i thought it looked really good yeah yeah like for sure like, composition wise and stuff i thought it was all really good yeah there are a couple scenes like there's one scene where uh ganja and hess are sitting across from each other and it is perfectly beautifully framed the house that he lives mm. in looks gorgeous like for a Kickstarter film, the the production design is pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I do feel like whereas in Do the Right Thing, a lot of Spike's flourishes and idiosyncrasies make that movie feel less like a sermon and more of like something that is memorable and effective and everything like that. I feel like his flourishes and idiosyncrasies in this movie just completely get in the way of any sort of coherent story or relationship or anything like that so i don't know it's 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 definitely a misfire of a movie it's not completely unwatchable i mean you know there's also a baby <laughs> vampire that's cool so you're right so that does redeem it yeah so i don't okay. know nine out of ten <laughs> <laughs> no but um yeah i mean i guess it's interesting because i mean again i haven't seen a lot of spike lee's films but he does have a lot of films like this where they just don't work, <laughs> but why they don't work is pretty interesting. So something I, I don't think is a super out, uh, a super hot take is, um, before this movie, I think, uh, Spike Lee did old boy mm -hmm. with, with, uh, Josh Brolin and Elizabeth Olsen in it. And he hated his experience with that movie. Uh, they thought he thought that like they ruined his creation, um, like in editing and stuff and so much so that he even called it a spike lee film um and not a spike lee joint like he normally does yeah and so i think he felt like extremely limited because of that movie and so he might have just like gone crazy with this like just random kickstarter film just gotten it like all out of his system you know <laughs> yeah i mean gladly he <laughs> did because do you want to yeah, do you want to move on to great yeah. yeah, yeah. let's move on to a much, much better film, in my opinion. This is 
Black Klansman 2018. Uh, this is the film that Spike Lee finally got an Oscar for. It was for writing, not for directing, but he got it. Um, so the synopsis of this film is Ron Stallworth, an African-American police officer in Colorado Springs, Colorado, okay, successfully manages to infiltrate the local Ku Klux Klan branch with the help of a Jewish surrogate who eventually becomes its leader, based on actual events. Black Klansman stars John David Washington and Adam Driver. It is written by Charlie Watchtel, David Rabinowitz, Kevin Wilmot, and Spike Lee, and of course it's directed by Spike Lee. How do you propose to make this investigation? Well, I've established contact and created some familiarity with the Klansmen over the phone. I'll continue in that role, but we'll need another officer. Surprise, surprise, a white officer to play me when they meet face-to-face. -face. That's my point exactly. Chief, black Ron Stallworth over the phone, white Ron Stallworth face-to-face, -face, so there becomes a combined Ron Stallworth. Can you do that? I believe we can with the right white man. We can do anything. So this is... Easily my favorite Spike Lee film. Uh, and we saw this in theaters together. So this is actually the first yeah. Spike Lee film that I've ever seen. Um, what are your thoughts on it? I, I love this movie. It comes pretty close. And I, maybe I should, should see Do the Right Thing again. Like I saw Do the Right Thing a while ago. And then I watched um, I watched Black Klansman more recently. Mm -hmm. And I would like to watch them both back to back. Because I think that. They're pretty close to each, each other in my head. Um, I think that the humor is so great in this movie, though. Yeah. And Adam Driver was really amazing. Uh, Washington was really amazing. I And I can't wait for Tenant now because of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this film is the funniest film on this list. Uh, yeah. I would be comfortable saying, I mean, I haven't seen all his other films again, but... Uh, this film is just so good at that thing that you said of making you laugh and then eventually making you go, shit, should I have been laughing? <laughs> yeah, like the one thing that stands out to me from this movie like that is when he's on the phone with David Duke. Yeah. And he like pretends to be a white guy like that was like that was really funny to watch. And then you like sort of think about it more and how and who David Duke is. <laughs> and you're like, uh. Yeah, and I mean, even, you know, you've got these two Ku Klux Klan members played by Paul Walter Hauser mm -hmm. and Jasper Pakkonen, who is a Finn, go Finnish people. Uh, I think they are really, really good as the two main clans members, and they're just really funny. But mm -hmm. then, especially not in the moment when you think about what you're doing, you're laughing at, actors say some pretty awful things and the reason that it's funny is because it's almost like a like a, a mechanism that you don't know what else to do but it is actually just also a really funny film there's sort of this kind of mm -hmm. hijinksy aspect to this film for at least the first two hours of its two hour and 15 minute runtime yeah and so the ending of this film is essentially a coda that flashes to images of the race riots in Charlottesville that happened in 2017. And it's a pretty quick turn from going to relatively lighthearted. And I would never call this film a romp, but it definitely does have romp and sort of capery elements to it, where as you're watching it, you're, you're really enjoying yourself. It's not like do the right thing where you're watching things wind up and, and get more and more tense. There are tense moments, mm -hmm. but I think overall, it's almost like uh, John David Washington's character specifically is kind of getting one over on the Ku Klux Klan. So it's a really enjoyable and fun watch. But then at the very end, it goes, boom, no, this stuff is still happening. This is still relevant. And all the things that you're laughing at literally happen right outside your backyard. And yeah. it kind of like snaps you back into reality. And I think it's amazing. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I definitely do remember, though, after I saw the film the first time, um, I was not happy <laughs> with the ending because I felt that it took subtext and made it very textual in a way that mm -hmm. felt kind of like it almost felt like it was. I thought it felt rushed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it also felt just like kind of blindsided whiplash in a way. But mm -hmm. I think after watching it a second time, which I did right before the Oscars, 
I thought that it was like a perfectly unsubtle response to something that needs a non-subtle response, you know, mm-hmm. um, especially like Trump is probably the least subtle person in the world. And so I think this is a really good film in response to the Trump era and everything that he's like done negatively to this country. Yeah. Like I, I really admire Spike Lee just being like, no, this is what this is about in a way that I think after my first watch, I was like, oh, I, I don't really like this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, he he's pretty much just like yelling at the, his audience, like, open open your goddamn eyes. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you just watched this movie. Now, like, look at look at reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think the thing that I like most about it is that it is still an incredibly enjoyable film. I think in some oh, weird yeah. ways. It is definitely Spike's most accessible film. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I would say so. At least of the five, the humor definitely helps here. with that. Yeah, but I think that this film also um, it, it ends with a very hard note. But a lot of the the rest of the film does give some moral ambiguity as to what's going on, and um, like. You know, there's the Laura Harrier character that is very anti-police, which mm. is um, a very valid opinion to have. Um, but then you've got the main character that is a police officer and kind of trying to dismantle the establishment from within and everything like that. So I, I, I do really like that this film has a little more room for interpretation, I think, than some of Spike's other films. Yeah, I agree. Total bullshit that it did not win. <laughs> at the Oscars for either best picture or best director. I, this is a really, really fantastic film. So, all right. So with that, let's go ahead and just quickly rank these five films before uh, wrapping things up, Ian. So why don't you give me your rank of, of these five films starting at the bottom? How would you rank them? Uh, starting at the bottom, I'd probably put uh, The Sweet Blood of Jesus and then 25th Hour and then she's got to have it and then black Klansman, and then do the right thing. Nice. Uh, I'm going to be yeah. basically shot for shot with you there, except uh, I would switch black Klansman and do the right thing. I think they're very good for very different reasons, but if I was ranking them, yeah. I just think black Klansman is fantastic. So uh, yeah, it's a shame that one of us wasn't like, no, you don't understand. The sweet blood of Jesus is a masterpiece. Let me explain it to you. <laughs> And we just have an argument over a movie that like 17 people saw, but I guess that wasn't in the cards. (laughs) I'll try better. I'll try harder next time. (laughs) Thank you. That's all I ask. Just, just (laughs) be better. So this has been our episode looking at the filmography of Spike Lee. Ian, thank you again for joining me today. Um, Is there anything specific that you'd like to plug? Uh, Yeah, you could, uh, you could follow me on uh, Twitch. I'm streaming on Twitch again. You can follow me at uh, at Strides VGC on uh, on Twitch. I'm planning on doing um, a bit of like a fundraiser stream. I'm not sure when this is going to be when this podcast is going to be dropping, but probably throughout this next week, I'm going to be doing a fundraiser stream for Black Lives Matter. So, oh, awesome! You can check that check that out. Okay, sweet. Yeah, definitely give me all of that contact information, and I will provide it. I've been plugging your hobby jogger uh, Twitch every time that you're on, but Oh, thanks. Now I'll have that's, to switch it. That's gone now, but... <laughs> okay, well, i have to switch it. Any reason for the switch? Uh, branding. Marketability. Ah. I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Stream- streamlining the business. Perfect. <laughs> the intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes... You can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on Podbean at MovieMarathoners.Podbean.com. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time when we run through Spike Lee's new film, 
The Five Bloods, which comes out next week on Netflix. So stay tuned for that. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Hi, I'm Christina Yerling-Biro, host of the podcast Pop Culture Confidential. Join me as I go way behind the scenes with some of the most influential people in entertainment and media. Hear actors such as Succession's Brian Cox talk about his favorite characters to play. There always has to be a mystery. The audience have to be in a situation where they want to know what's going on. Meet studio execs like Pixar chief Pete Docter and learn his secret on how he makes us cry. Emotion is our first language. And so many others who are defining popular culture, from Obama speechwriter David Litt to Top Chef host Padma Lakshmi. We don't often think about food politically or we don't want to, but it really is. Join me. Search for Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts.